cliffcentral.com. Anyone who listens to the show knows that I'm a massive history nerd and I love nothing more than reading and learning about the history of not only our own country, but, you know, everything else that's happened before we came along. I think there's nothing worse than meeting somebody who thinks that the whole world started when they came along, like, you know, for example, Donald Trump. But this morning, <laughs> this morning, I'm thrilled to be able to talk to someone who has, along with uh, Herman Guillemier and Bernard Mbenga and a number of other uh, terrific art, uh, writers, uh, they've managed to put in historians, they managed to put a tremendous book together about the history of South Africa. And this is called The New History of South Africa, um, something which I got my teeth into and started taking a look at virtually as soon as it arrived. I'm thrilled to have one of those authors with me today. Uh, he is none other than Professor Bill Nassen. Bill, it's very nice to see you and thank you very much for your time. Nice to see you, Gareth, and thank you very much for your interest in the book and having me on your prestigious show. Thank you. Well, I hope it's prestigious enough. I mean, I know, um, you know, history will be the judge of anything, and, and that's what it makes is. speaking to, to historians such fun. Uh, first of all, <laughs> congratulations on the book. You know, it's, it's, it's a difficult and it's an arduous and it's almost an impossible task to put together a history of a country. Uh, even a country mm. as young as mm. South Africa by comparative mm. standards. But obviously, mm. you know, different parts of the book were written by different authors. And yes. I have no doubt that mm. the, the three of you who are given, you know, kind of top billing on the cover here, mm. you, Herman, and, mm. and Bernard, um, I'm sure that the three of you spent an inordinate amount of time putting this together mm. and compiling your various uh, responsible parts of, mm. of the book. Mm. Was it was it fun to do or was it was it a, dif a difficult um, and, and horrible task? <laughs> Um, I think you need to have uh, you need to have very good and patient uh, publishers, uh, which we fortunately had. Uh, my previous experience of editing sort of compendiums like this is that it's a it's a bit like herding cats. You know, it's not it's not necessarily always an enjoyable experience, but it's very satisfying when it all comes together at the end. Um, I mean, as you as you may have spotted, it's it's really a new edition of uh, of an earlier version of the new history of South Africa, which came out right. in two thousand and and seven, um, right. so it's not it's not quite new wine in an old bottle, but you know, slightly more mature wine in a slightly fresher bottle would be the most accurate way of of describing. You know, yeah, we'll we'll talk about school yeah. syllabus in a in a moment or yeah. two. And we'll talk about what kind of a history the the students of today are learning about because I think it must be a very different one to the kind of history that either you or I learned when we were at school. Mm. But um, it's it's worth me just giving everybody who's not sure of your uh, reputation just a little bit of background. So, so Bill is an emeritus professor of history at Stellenbosch University. He's also a fellow of the Stellenbosch Institute for Advanced Study. He's also served as professor of history and the head of the department at Cape Town University for two decades. Uh, that's nothing to smirk at. Hmm. He's also held fellowships at Yale, University of Cambridge, the Australian National University, the Australia of Kent, and Trinity College in Dublin. And he was co-editor of the Cambridge History of South Africa um, and, and many other writings. I mean, hmm. you know, really in terms of, of your your cv you're unassailable oh this is a this is a this is a great thing to be able to sit here and talk to you it's almost like being able to go and uh, walk into the history building at any of our reputable universities and just uh sit sit down with an appointment without an appointment for 20 minutes with someone smart 
<laughs> well, I, I delete the smart. I'm not sure about that, but um, <laughs> but I think you you're being very very indulgent. Thank you very much for for well, your recognition. Yes. Well, where do we even think, start when you when you look at the history of South Africa, which obviously is a very complicated thing to do. First of all, because um, you have to divide it up into periods. Mm. You have to decide mm. which period's the most uh, important for us to, to, to look at from the point of view of where we are at the moment. But you also have to take in political mm. points of view. Um, and so mm. much of South Africa's history is enormously contentious, isn't it? Mm. Oh, it is. I mean, I think the thing about, thing about going to the past or, or looking at the past through the lens of history is that you're always rewriting the past. You know, I mean, I'm sure we both agree on that, that, that mm. all, all history of the past is sort of present history. I mean, how you see the past through, through the present. So today you wouldn't see the history of South Africa starting with the beginning of colonization, for instance. You'd go back right. much, much further, which is what we do in this book. Mm. So, I mean, you started off by saying South Africa is a very young country, which is an interesting paradox because it is very young. I mean, South Africa as a sort of political state really only existed right. since 1910. But it's also a very, very old country. And one of the, you know, the first section of the book is really about the very early settlement of um, South Africa, you know. Well, you so, could even claim long before that that we were the cradle of civilization. Of civilization, yeah. I mean, it, you know, you go back through millennia to the very origins of, of humankind in, in, this part of, um, in this part of the continent. So, so in that sense, the book is about a new country, but also about a very old country. And that's one of the very many paradoxes of um, of South Africa. And the other thing, if I can just slip this in quickly, is that a lot of it is about migration. You know, the, the, the history of South Africa is the history of migration. And that, again, is a very present resonance, yeah. you know, where we live in the midst of xenophobia and so on. Because, I mean, all oh, yeah. countries, all countries are the products of migration, except someone once told me Kenya. Kenya is the world's only country, which is not the, the product of migration. How do they figure that? I don't know. I'm not an archaeologist, but I think archaeologists have figured. We've got, a, I mean, archaeologists yeah. contribute to this book. So, I mean, you know, you know we with, say, with, the, with the benefit of hindsight, maybe in 2000 years, if the human species survives that much longer, yeah. they'd look back and see all of this very wide array of time that you've just described mm. as being a, a blip on the radar. And maybe the South Africa that exists in even a hundred years from now won't even look or sound or feel like the South Africa we're in right now. And as a, oh, history, yes. as a history professor and as, a, as an author of, and, mm. and, a, and someone who's mm. trying to document as, as accurately as possible the history of a country, you have to be quite humble. Yes, no, you do. I mean, you can't but be dwarfed by, by these massive processes and these massive events and trying to make, to make sense of them, you know. I mean, what we do in this book is to try to get as close to the present as possible. So the most difficult chunk in the book, I thought or think, is the bit that I um, I ended up having to do, you know, Sod's Law, is is the sort of Zuma section, you know, dealing with the very last last present. But that was um, that was probably the the worst bit of writing I've ever had to do. It's uh, the closest closest thing to aversion therapy, I think. Um, Not to mention doing that. Uh, Somewhat depressing. <laughs> and depressing. Oh, yes. No, utterly, utterly gloomy. And, and you have to, in a way, you know, I've, 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 I mean, I've got something in the epilogue and this book has sort of end pieces and, and front pieces. And part of the thing, part of the, 
part of that is thinking about how South Africa just continues to cohere. And, you know, it's one of these countries which, uh, which function despite their governments. That's such say, a good you point. Know. You know, we, I often talk about this on the show. And, and again, I love talking to people who have the benefit of a, of a wide lens when it comes to subjects like history. Unfortunately, mm. too many other subjects are about the, the moment, the present, mm. um, and yes. whatever discovery yeah. or whatever, mm. uh, you know, investment or whatever economic situation is at hand. Um, yes. And I, I have to, I have to ask you yeah. if you agree with me with the yeah. benefit of a wide lens to look back on and the, and the understanding that over a huge period of time, so much can happen and so many ways of interpreting it can arise. Do you agree that this really is, despite the, the fact that we often feel sorry for ourselves, the best time to be alive? I mean, if I plonked you back at any point in South African history before now, you'd probably have, have a lot more trouble. You'd be a lot more concerned you might be very deeply worried about your safety and your <laughs> your immediate survival more than anything yes. else this oh, is I the best that, time right well in in some ways i mean in some it's it's like dickens you know the best of times the worst of times <laughs> let's not forget that from a tale of two cities but i but i think i mean one of the one of the, again one of the many paradoxes about south africa is that it's actually historically it's a remarkably safe country in which to live, in which to have gone through the 20th century. The world wars did virtually nothing. There was the yeah. Spanish flu in 1918 and, of course, AIDS in more recent decades. But actually life expectancy has gone up through the 20th century. There's been no genocides to speak of. Right. So South Africa, paradoxically, is quite safe in comparison with Europe. I mean, we only have to look at the Ukraine and, um, you know, Eastern right. Europe today um and i find that that an intriguing thing and a sobering thing to um to reflect on you know let's not let's not forget to count some of our blessings well speaking of those blessings i mean in terms of the the overall history of south africa we, we we're in an interesting place geographically we're in an interesting time politically mm. we have a very diverse and interesting population dynamic mm. um there are loads of things that actually make us quite a remarkable place. And I, I know that there are countries that can mm. claim maybe to have even more diversity. There are countries that can claim to be more wealthy in minerals or in natural resources. Mm. There are probably countries, uh, although I, I struggle to think of them, that are you know, less victim to natural disasters than we are. We've got a, quite, mm. quite scot-free on that front too. Mm. Um, we, we sometimes mm. think we're a bit isolated, but in some ways that's also quite good geopolitically some mm. of the time, right? Yes, I think, I think I agree. I mean, I think, um, I mean, you wouldn't think of Ireland as being a place of, um, of, uh, of wonderful balmy beaches and warm weather, but I mean, Ireland is, is in a similar sort of position, you know, a sort of small country, but fantastically rich with literature and writers and musicians and, and, you know, away from these dangerous currents that swirl around many other countries. So South Africa, as long as South Africa doesn't get too big for its boots, which it sometimes does and has, mm -hmm. has done so in history, it's not, yeah. you know, it's, it's, um, yes, if South Africa retains a modest sense of itself, then things, things could, you know, keep on ticking over, I think. Is it a very difficult mm. thing when you're putting a, a book like this together, and especially when you're writing a chapter like yours at the end about the Zuma years, 
is it very difficult to balance fairly? And again, this is not a perfect science. You know, history is, mm. is not a scientific no, subject not, for that no. reason. Mm. Um, is it a difficult thing to balance the cultural interests and the mm. political interests of so many diverse mm. people? Mm. Oh, it's very difficult. I mean, it's very difficult to, to deal with uh, in ways that don't compartmentalize people into, you know, racial silos or whatever. You know, we live in a period where there's a, you know, we know we know the period through which we are living where there's a sort of race obsessiveness. Yeah. Um, but what we try to do in the book is to find other ways of thinking about those things through other prisms. You know, I think, for instance, the early part of the book uh, with the settlement of the Cape, there's quite a lot about religion. And I always think religion is one of the neglected themes in in many South African histories, you know, we live in a deeply religious country. I mean, not That's I'm personally not. Point. I'm personally not religious, but we, I, you know, you have to recognise that the society in which you live is profoundly religious, much more so than many other countries. You know, it's religious like you know the rest of Africa. You're so right. I, I'm also yeah. I'm, I'm not a religious person, but you, <clears throat> the average South African is quite religious and quite conservative. Oh, yes. I mean, I think that's the other thing. Conservative and things like, you know, respectability and um, to use that Afrikaans, but ordentlicate, you know, just being mm, well-behaved. Family values, very, very powerful. Yeah. I mean, much more so than most other countries I can I can think of, or certainly countries in which I've traveled, you know, much more so than New Zealand or Australia, let's say. Yeah, it, it, it seems like um, an, an easy thing for people who studied history in a kind of passing pedestrian way to kind of just consign us to this country that had this race story. Mm, um, but I, yes. I see so often that there are, there are massive overlaps between the way Afrikaners felt about themselves, for example, and the way Zulus feel about themselves. Mm, and I'm yes. sure this is a subject of discussion in many of your <laughs> lectures and has been in many of your books and probably even your mm. dinner conversations a lot of the time. Yes. Yes, yeah, so that's a bit, um, to get back to the Irish, you know, the Afrikaners, the Irish and the Zulus, you could say, are burdened by grievances, you know, and yeah. that's, um, and, or yeah. have been historically. And, uh, you know, the best thing that they can do is to shuffle off those grievances. It may take some time, but eventually they will, they will, they will go or they, you know, they have gone. I mean, I don't get a sense yeah. that, um, that, you know, it's very difficult, again, as historians, to generalize about what people think today. But but I well, suspect, you know, that, I mean, no one really goes on about the concentration camps, really. I mean, aside from a small fringe. Yeah. Of, and, uh, that was, and that was, a, that was we were the country that uh, first tried out guerrilla warfare on any scale. And we were the country where the British first tried to do that with concentration yes. camps, weren't we? Yes. Well, that's, um, the, the, that's again, those are... Yeah, South Africa is also a place of myths. I mean, uh, guerrilla wars um, started sort of before uh, the Boer guerrillas took up arms. I mean, in the late 19th century in the Philippines and elsewhere, there was guerrilla warfare. And the British are actually unfairly uh, unfairly credited. I don't think credited is the right word, but uh, you know, infamously credited with having started concentration camps. But again, the French used concentration camps in North Africa and so on. The British simply carried it to more incompetent and um, more um, extensive measures here. And of course, it was a bumbling disaster, as we know. Yeah. Oh, no, look, yeah. there, there are so yeah. many things. There's so many things in South African history that are just very embarrassing. 
And we have to yes. face up to those too. Uh, you know, mm. one of the things I think that makes us quite interesting and that, that I think is a source of some pride to us is that there are some very, very ancient hunter-gatherer cultures who continue mm. to exist under, I mean, you know, mm. they're imperiled on all sides now and, and mm. their, their original uh, areas that they used to dwell in are, are now hardly recognizable mm. to them. Yes, They've yes. been pushed into far corners of the most arid parts of South Africa. Mm. We've got that as in, as a unique population, you know, mm. the Khoi and the yeah. San. Mm. And yeah. then we've got the, 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 the amazing Cape Colored population mm. who, mm. you know, the, these people, while they, they have diverse ancestry, are mm. a uniquely South African population. Mm. Okay. They don't exist anywhere yes. else. Well, yes. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I think South Africa also, and you, you encounter these figures in the book. A lot of these, a lot of really interesting unsung um, uh, government or public figures. I mean, you take uh, Andre Stockenström in the mm -hmm. Cape in the 19th century. He was a very interesting liberal figure. And Robert Southey was also a colonial figure, but was an anti-abolitionist. -ab -ab I mean, he was against capital punishment and he was anti-slavery. <laughs> and here he was running the Cape in the 1850s and a strong believer in a multiracial franchise. So I think there are, I mean, I think there's a tendency for, um, particularly under, uh, you know, under the nationalists today who have their own versions of villains and heroes, that one of the problems with South Africa is to get rid of, get away from history being a story of villains and heroes. Mm -hmm. And just, and just, and just mm -hmm. history being a sort of bit more of a mix, you know. But, but unfortunately, um, this is this is something which I think mm. you probably find even more irritating than me because no one's ever called on me to contribute to this. But they try to put out these lists of the greatest South Africans. Africans, and, yes, yes. And yeah. oof, well, I mean, where do you, well, you know? Again, yeah. your villain might be someone else's hero, and vice versa. Yeah, yes, but yes. but there are but there are again, you have to have such a deep knowledge of history to understand that some of the best stories are not famous, powerful or wealthy individuals who did you know things with that mm. power wealth or fame but sometimes these mm. these amazing stories that become part of our national myth you know mm. these, these mm. stories about dingan or volrad voltemada or you know the 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 Kodessa talks or whatever it might yes. be these these are things yes. which i find probably a lot more interesting than just compiling a list which will feature obviously the nelson mandelas the desmond tutus Yes. The, um, you know. Yeah. I think, you know, I think all countries need, all countries need myths of some kind. And I like the Welsh historian Gwyn Williams, who I, of whom I'm a great fan, um, who said that, you know, he said something along these lines that countries, countries all need their own myths. Um, but what matters is that they, they have to be myths that walk, as he puts it. I love that phrase. Myths that walk, that myths that people can really properly internalize and those are not the myths of great men and or, or great women they just much closer to much closer to ordinary life and much closer to you know the flux of daily existence and like you know i don't know the black sashier in the 50s yeah i mean those are the kind of you know well we did just have women figures, you know? one and women's one yeah. famous you know women who led that march who's still alive and even yes. her version of history is different to perhaps how so many people wrote it down then. Um, yes. This is the problem, oh, no, right? Sure, I mean, yeah. I'll move off of 
general history in a second because I do want to yeah. talk about your mm. your own love of history and where that came from and what you're most interested in now. Um, and we'll talk obviously in, in some more detail about the book. But where did it all begin for you? I mean, mm. were you were you one of those children who was lucky enough to have had a good history teacher? Because that's what happened to me, and and that that won me over early. Mm. Mm. Um. Yes, I mean, I grew up, I didn't grow up in a house with lots of books. Um, I grew up as a little nerd, really, with uh, ethics toy soldiers. And I, so I grew up with, fascinated in, by the Second World War. And I think a lot of people of my generation would have had the same experience. So I suppose that my interest in the past was World War Two, And the idea of, you know, the heroic Britons uh, defeating the terrible Nazis. Um, but then at school, I had, I had, like you, wonderful history teacher, extraordinary extraordinary history teacher would teach us he told us we needed to understand Fowler and Smith which was a notorious nationalist textbook then and he said you need to you need to understand this book in order to pass exams when you get to matric but you also need to know the other stuff so let me tell you the other stuff so he gave oh, us good. both oh, you know good. so we had a so we had I think it's what educational theorists call a hidden curriculum so that's what our history lessons were like. Our history lessons were the official history lesson. And then once or twice a week, we'd have another history lesson, including, you know, debates and quizzes and so on about mm -hmm. what he called the, the real story, which today you wouldn't call the real story. You'd call it something else. You'd call it another version or something. But that was amazing. And that just got me, you know, really gripped me. And then at university, I had amazing history lecturers who were inspirational. And, well, you um, say yeah, the word story yeah. because because story ma makes up part of the word history, and obviously, yes. you know, obviously the great stories of our past are they're they're a, they're a window onto where we come from, and everybody wants to know a little bit about where they come from, if not a lot. Yes. Um, yes. Do you, did you take an interest in in kind of your own history, your own family history, or is that something that came after all of the other subjects? No, I've, I've, I've actually, I've never really been interested in my own history or family history because, I don't know, I think I'm sort of a fairly boring person. So um, I'm more interested, I think, I'm more interested in other people. You know what I mean? If that makes sense. I'm, I'm interested in other people's stories. Well, interested is interesting, and I, I don't think anyone who's written as many books as you have can claim to be boring. No, I mean, one of the jobs I really liked was... Um, was when I, uh, after a period of a decade more uh, studying and working in Britain, I came back and then I had a job in an oral history project at UCT. My first job year in about 1985. Um, and that was interviewing residents who'd been in District 6. Oh, and that wow. was extraordinary, really. So we, you know, we basically went out um, and interviewed residents who'd been displaced. And of course, you interview the most extraordinary range of of people. I mean, I'll tell you one story. If yes. you've got the time, one story. I interviewed, I interviewed a woman who said to me, oh, I used to walk in the, walk up the mountain, you know, above Woodstock. And um, I used to walk up on uh, Sunday mornings and then I would meet the unsmuts. And I looked at her and I said, really? I mean, skeptically. She said, oh, yes, you know, we would stop and have a chat and so on. Obas with his hat and so on. And she said, you don't believe me, do you? And I said, well, I'm not sure, really. I didn't want to be rude and say, no, I don't. And she said, well, let me show you. And she went and she came back with a little um, shoebox. Mm -hmm. and, um, and inside were a collection of photographs she'd taken of Jan Smuts. 
with her brownie box camera. Incredible. Smiling, you know, incredible story, really. And I said, what did you talk about? And, you know, she went on about what they talked about, the state of the country, the state of the world, and plants, because Smuts, of course, was a great botanist. But that was an extraordinary. But, I mean, for me, that's, you know, that just keeps that's you going amazing. if you really, if, uh, if and, history and, is to kind of, yeah. And, and unfortunately, this is also the problem with history, right? If you hadn't encountered her, if she hadn't told you that story, if you hadn't included it in the record, it would yeah. have been lost. And, and this is true of so much of history. And of course, yes. in South Africa, the oral tradition is the major mm. means by which so much of our history, particularly black it's, African history, is transmitted. It's transmitted. Yeah, it's transmitted. Exactly. Exactly. And needs to be. Are we you doing, know, are we doing maintained. a better job? of recording that stuff now? I think we are now. We are now, I think, yes. I mean, it seems to me that the, the, the job the job is really to make it accessible um, for general readers. Mm. And I think, uh, I don't want to get into trouble here with academic colleagues, but um, I think one of the problems in South African history is that there's, there's, there's a lot of highly theorized academic writing, which is not mm. really accessible to general readers. And I think that the job, you know, your professional job really should be to make your findings and your research accessible to the myth of the the interested right. general reader and um, right. just write plainly and understandably, really. So, yeah. Are there any I've of the things that you remember learning early on in your life that have been completely turned around by new discoveries, either archaeological or from the oral tradition? Or anywhere else that you that you actually had to pause and go, oh wow, that's changed an enormous <laughs> chapter of what I thought South African history was was settled as. Oh gosh, that's um, well. I suppose I knew from school that the Van Riebeek stuff was, you know, that's when the world started. Yeah, when Van Riebeek arrived on <laughs> on these shores, um, I, I think that is about fifty two, and uh, and so on. But I mean, there's some, there are some very Interesting. Um, can I tell you another little story? Mm. So, um, so there's 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 Saul Plaki, who uh, you know the first Secretary General of the a, uh, ANC, the South African Native right. National Congress back then, and he, he lived in Kimberley, and he had a he had a, a fight with his landlord about the rent. The landlord put up the rent, and you know hadn't given him sufficient warning, so they had an argument. And the landlord called him that notorious K-word, which we dare not utter in public or even privately Mm -hmm. in South Africa, right? So he took took the landlord to court Mm -hmm. because he could in the Cape Colony. There was legal equality. And and he brought a civil claim against the landlord for defaming him by calling him that terrible word. Right. And um, the landlord lost. Had to pay damages, yeah. and had to print an apology in the Kimberley Advertiser, Diamond Fields mm-hmm. Advertiser. But the fascinating thing about the case is that when you actually look at the trial records, is what does Saul Plaki say in his defence? Plaki says, "How dare this man call me that word? I'm not that K word. Mine workers are that K word." Oh wow! <laughs> farm, farm workers are that K word. Oh wow! I am an educated man. Yeah. I'm the interpreter for the Kimberley magistrate. I'm busy translating Shakespeare into Tswana. 
I'm writing right. a novel. How dare you call me that? So you know what I mean? So it's a story yeah. which is not about race. It's about class. It's this, it's a story about class. What That's a story. Was, yeah. I mean, for me, I used to, I used to use that teach, that story in teaching at UCT and in Stellenbosch for years. And students would sit there and their faces would drop because then I'd say, what, what, what is that story about? And you'd get a few hands up and would say, well, this is about racism. And so I said, no, yeah. think about what, it, what, what, you know, what's actually being said. Well, I mean, isn't class one of the, 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 the last kind of, refuges for those very, very mm. dangerous historians like you who are prepared to go there. Because South Africa, we've always believed, you know, we talk about the South African middle mm. class and the working class, but we've, class, yes. we've never really believed we had an upper class. But for most of our history, we absolutely did. And yes. there were some people, there still are, you know, the 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 the, the various kings of the various tribes mm. were Mm. By all intents mm. and purposes, considered aristocrats mm. and upper class yes, people. Of course. Um, there were the English aristocrats who mm. governed here famously during the period of, of English rule. The Dutch themselves. And the, thought, and the, the, thought, exactly. The Herrenkracht, you know, the, the Herren, right. the Dutch, the top yeah. Dutch, the, the Dutch gentry and the English landlords. I mean, they were all a very distinctive upper class in, uh, in this country, a kind of, you know, Ill-gotten yeah. gains aristocracy who lorded Absolutely. it over, who lorded it over everyone else. With, yeah, and, you sometimes, know, the, and sometimes and, acted with, and sometimes acted with even more, um, what would you even call it, arrogance mm. than yes. their European older brothers and sisters because they were further away and could get away with more. They could. No, that's it. Because Europe was reforming and changing, but out here. The, the relations were frozen. Mm. So, for example, if you take, uh, we don't even need to take South Africa, take Kenya, where the, the British used to have in the 19th century masters and servants legislation, which gave the masters yeah. enormous power over their servants. But, of course, mm. that was outlawed in Britain by the end of the 19th century. But right. it continued in Kenya up to the 1960s. And and you must have a couple of stories, too, that you love to tell people in lectures and in, in your books about how these unexpected alliances between the races happened against the classes sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and we, we know how complicated and patchy the, the Boers, the Klasa, and the British were around the Eastern Cape area. And mm, how much more yeah. that was complicated when the 1820 settlers were mm. dispatched there. Um, and, and again, how even inside the, the various Kosa tribes, there were enormous mm. rivalries and mm. people were selling out this one to that one. The British oh, were yes, making a deal with this one. The, the, the Afrikaners were fighting alongside these ones and then not those ones. Yes. I'm informing these alliances. You want a quick story? There's yeah. the, you take, you take the Bambata rebellion in Natal, right. 1906, which was the last armed African uprising against white colonial rule. So, so that rebellion was crushed by the Natal militia, uh, with tremendous ferocity. I mean, you know, put Dino Zulu's head on a stick and paraded it through Peter Maritzburg. So to show, to set an example in Britain, in the House of Commons, Winston Churchill, who's, you know, never been one of the great milksops of history. Winston <laughs> Churchill denounced Natal and called it the hooligan of the British Empire for behaving like that. And this is, uh, this is the great story. So, um, 
the, the Zulu leader was then sentenced to six years. I forget exactly how long, but for six years or longer in, to sentenced to prison. And then in 1910, South Africa became a union. And who became the first prime minister? Louis Buerta. Right. What's one of the first things Louis Buerta did? Because he now had that power of clemency as the country's first prime minister. He released Dino Zulu from prison in wow. Natal. Because why did he do that? Because Dino Zulu was his old chummy. Right. That he right. and Dino Zulu had collaborated in the 1880s. Uh, and Dina Zulu had ass- assisted him. He'd assisted Dina Zulu in some of his, uh, inter, you know, interfactional squabbles within the Zulu kingdom. So he released Dina Zulu, who went to Louis Buerta's farm and lived out the rest of his life as a guest mm-hmm. on Louis Buerta's farm. Now that's a story you don't hear very often. And in standard histories, you don't hear that actually. You just hear about, you just hear about Louis Buerta and the Land Act. Um, you know, it's yeah. not to say, not to say that doesn't count. Of course it does. But there's also another side to the picture, which you also have to bear in mind because it's about the and, complexity and Bill, of things. You know. It must be very, very disheartening for you when you are required so often as a historian to summarize and to make concise something which is very complex. You know, mm. We're living in a complex time right now. Mm. We have so much going on on a daily basis that if you picked up the newspapers, you would be, yes. you'd be rightly yeah, yes, confused. Yes. But yes. the historian is then expected to come in, sometimes a very long time after that, and mm. make a golden thread which leaves out so much of the big right. picture. Mm. And yes. you know, suddenly, if you're, if you're the, a great warrior king, then that's all you were. Shaga is mm. just this great warrior king. There's no yes. nuance. There's no discussion of any of the detail. Unless, of course, you're prepared to go and do the work. And you know this also from all your writing about wars. Yes. You know, wars, people like, you know, to have, yeah. they like to have a good guy and a bad guy. And that's yeah. it. Yes. No, exactly. You know, so that, I mean, I interviewed a, a South African, a white South African veteran of the Second World War. And uh, he talked about um, South Africa in, um, in uh, uh, what was then sort of Ethiopia, Abyssinia. Um, and they were there where they had uh, African uh, laborers. I mean, uh, auxiliary troops with them. Right. And of course, the instruction he said was from Pretoria that Africans were not to be armed. But he said, you know, he said, well, they're also in danger like the rest of us. So the Italians ran off and left their weapons behind and they just distributed the rifles to their African fellow soldiers. <laughs> so they just armed them. So he said to me, what we thought was bugger smuts, you know, he's not out here on the front line with his, putting his life in danger. We are. Right. Well, they, we all are. And we all have to look after each other. You know, we're all soldiers. Sort of, it's that sort of stuff, actually, that, that gets airbrushed out or lost because it's not politically convenient to, to bring up some of those nuances, you know. And I, thank you. I mean, your point about the nuances is so good. I mean, it's absolutely crucial. Well, the other thing that has to happen is that people are, are required to pluck the rise and fall of nations, right? So they, yes, yeah. you, you're, you're asked, okay, well, Bill, we've got this job for you by a publisher or anyone else. And they say, we want you to now chart South Africa's progress. And when we reached our peak, which some will say was 1994, and we were the, the darling of the world from being the mm. skunk of the world, and you know, the, we were flying high, we had all this moral capital that we could Mm. used to, to to engender our place in, in, in mm. the modern world and, and hopefully mm. build something out of that. And, you know, mm. you and I have lived through it and everyone is yes. listening to this 
is probably yes. the threat. Mm. And and then you're asked to take the graph and to continue it from 1994. <laughs> and, and how do you yes. think if you had to draw that graph and you've been asked to do it many times, this is not going to be a task for you. How do you think it's gone since then? Well, well it certainly hasn't gone on. You know, it hasn't gone upward. Let's face it. Um, I don't know. I mean, you can console yourself with the feeling that, you know, there's a lovely line from that, from the poet, Philip Larkin is one of my favorite poets who says, um, who's, who writes somewhere about, you know, nations rise and fall like weeds and flowers. And, um, and then he's, you know, I mean, he's talking about the Welsh and rugby, actually. It's a satirical poem about, you know, right. the Welsh, but not the rugby playing giants they once were. Although they haven't done too badly recently again. Well, there you are, you see, they've risen. So, but I think, I think there we are. So I think, I mean, I think you could argue that South Africa between the period, um, let's say 1910 to, uh, yeah, up to 48 was, you know, sort of on the rise in a manner of speaking. Uh, it was less badly affected by the Great Depression, less badly affected than other parts of the world and so on. And then it goes through that sort of skunk apartheid period. And then it goes through the early flush that you've been talking about or the rosy post-apartheid honeymoon. And I think now it's going through a bit of a dip. But, you know, who knows? It's um, Don't ask me. I'm an historian. I'm better on the past than, <laughs> than on the present and the future. <laughs> wow. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, the, the, the Zuma years are certainly – that's a horrible chapter to have to write. But yeah. there are there are amazing – resources available to historians now that probably weren't available before you know the ability to record things uh, yes. the ability to to have conversations like you and i are having now across yes a great distance um i'm able to pick your brain and and ask you things which before i would have had to have been a paying student at uct to be able to do mm. this is great news for everyone who loves mm. history isn't it oh yes absolutely so much easier now and I think, you know, we live in a, we live in a, I mean, this is um, something to celebrate. We live in a, in a, in a disobedient kind of society. I mean, that's, I think, one of, one of South Africa's saving graces. I mean, there's some very bad things about it, you know, drunk driving and so on. But in other respects, it's not a conforming, conformist kind of society. And that I think is the great, one of the great hopes for the future long may it remain so that we can chat like this i mean this for instance you know i mean imagine trying this in the 1960s for god's sake oh, no. No. you know oh, no. well, exactly yes yeah well again so we can do that now you know yeah. does it does it and i know you you don't sound like the kind of person who gives into irritation easily but does it irritate you that people have a very short memory and that yes. their ability as opposed to yours as someone who's made mm. a, a life of studying history does it annoy you sometimes that so many People, particularly young people, I've, I've been going around wherever I could from school to school telling people, please study history because it teaches you. It's the only subject you do at school. It's actually about people. Mm, and, yes. Yeah. And it gives you perspective, mm. you know, and, and perspective yes. and context are probably what's missing. You know, when you see people arguing yes. about politics or about, you know, culture or anything else, history gives you tools to be able to. First of all, I think be a little more tolerant and understanding. Mm, mm. And second of all, to, to have the ability to not always judge because you, as you said just now when I asked you about the future, you don't know. You so don't you have know. A little humility. And, yes. And I think the other thing that history teaches you is kind of empathy. I mean, there are people you may not Absolutely. like, but, you know, history will teach you to have some sense of, you may not agree with them at all, but, but you must 
you know, you should end up through history with understanding with understanding them and understanding what those positions are, even though you disapprove, prove of it, you know, being able to just put yourself into someone else's shoes, to put it very bluntly. Well, that's a very controversial thing to say these days because we have a mm. lot of revisionist historians. And mm. I, I'd love to know your opinion on people pulling down statues, people rewriting history completely, people mm. trying to make um, and, and we've seen this in, in South African history. This has happened a number of times. We've gone through this cycle over and over again, you know, and it seems that there are still a number of people in the world who are not content to learn any of history's lessons, mm. instead mm. want to sanitize it in some cases, villainize it in other cases, mm. make it up completely out mm. of whole cloth in some other places. How do you mm. feel about those people? Well, I'd, I'm absolutely opposed to, uh, you know, pulling down statues. I mean, put up new statues, but right. don't pull down, don't pull down existing ones. And or the new the ones really, move the really well, onerous ones to less prominent yes, places, or in places or something. But sure. you know, the point is that the, the new ones you put up may be shiny now, but who knows what they look like in fifty years' time? They may too. They may too have feet of clay. You know, I mean, there's one and view. Yeah, I mean, the Romans used to tear down statues all the time. It's probably not widely known, but they were constantly doing that, uh, melting them down um, yeah. for, for because they used the coin, you know, so those statues they used as money. Um, but, I mean, I think today, I think that's very reprehensible. You can't erase and rewrite history. In, in, it's warts and all, you know. You've just got to face up to it. And you also and said that, yeah. that history teaches not, you everything. Yeah. Te yeah. teaches you empathy, but but it also we we need to be reminded of how awful people can be as well. Mm. And if we oh, yes. if we yeah. if we erase any of this history, you know, if, for example, yeah. we decided that the apartheid era was so embarrassing that we needed to completely wipe it from the face of the earth, mm. we would we would soon find that there would be people who would be coming up with as noxious ideas. And trying yes. to proffer them as something new because people had forgotten that that was already something we'd tried. Yes. And it's oh, no, of course. Be done again. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, you invent a kind of fake amnesia about aspects of, uh, of the past because you think the point is to feel good. You know, that history must make you feel good and feel positive and feel wholesome. And I don't think that's what history is. History is not that's not therapy. You know, if you want to do that, then have therapy, but. But don't do it. Don't do it through studying history. Wow. I'm, I'm yeah. actually just so happy to be talking to someone about these, these things, which uh, too often I'll find a friend of mine is particularly interested in maybe some part of history. But to talk about it with someone mm. who's had a mm. wide range of, of experiences and, and has mm. read as much and understands as much about it as mm. you do is, is real, real privilege. Mm. Bill, I also oh, hear you're a yeah. massive fan of Peter Cook. I am. Yes. No, I'm a lifelong member of the Peter Cook um, Appreciation Society. Are you? I mean, I've always been a great... Um, <laughs> Peter Cook, I, great... again, I don't know how many people will, will remember Peter Cook. Uh, once once a, a collaborator with Dudley Moore, of all people. Yes, right? that's right. Yes, yes, the, the two of them. Yeah, yes. And and the, and and a man of many wonderful sayings and and sketches. I mean, one of his famous, one of, one of, one of the sayings I love, it's Peter Cook saying, the tragedy of my life is that I was an only twin. <laughs> you know, nice, actually. And then he, he does, and if you remember the, 
the Jeremy Thorpe trial, you know, the Jeremy Thorpe case in 1971, uh, the Liberal Party leader who was acquitted, astonishingly, in, in the court case, acquitted of conspiracy to murder. And then Peter Cook does, um, he does a sort of comedy sketch where he's dressed up like the judge and he says to the jury, and now, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you may retire to consider and deliberate over your verdict of not guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Etc. 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 Yeah. My very minimal exposure to him came in the form of a, a cameo he did in Black Adder alongside Rowan Atkinson, where he played King Richard the Third. Yes. You know he was dry and he was probably very very drunk through the filming. Yeah. Oh yes. But, yes. But no, what, I mean, what an incredible! Yeah. I mean, for someone to make that impression on you in about yes. five minutes of screen time just shows you what it character. No, it's a, no, it's astonishing, actually. I mean, it's terrible, the end of his life where he was, you know, an mm-hmm. alley, alcoholic beyond measure. But, I mean, to the extent yeah. that people would hide the, um, if they had, um, what do you call it, mouthwash in bathrooms, they would hide it <laughs> when Peter came around for dinner because he'd be dropping away, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's really awful. Oh. But uh, for me, the funniest, the funniest, um, the funniest man, actually, who ever lived. Do you think yeah. about do you think about posterity, either your own or that of you know the 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 great people who you've studied in your life, and and try to mm. figure out what it's all about? Because so often we we compare the story of X person or Y person very often because that person has been uh, tremendously powerful, or they were just absolutely. Mm you know, downright evil and genocidal. The, mm, the greatest yeah. names the greatest names could be the builders of civilization, but they could equally be the ones who killed off civilizations. But do you huh, think about yes, prosperity yeah. very much? And do you th- do you think that we've ever really come up with a good way of measuring whether someone has lived a valuable, productive life or not? I don't think I don't know. I mean I don't know if I think about prosperity who uh I don't know, I think of Shane Warne, you know. I mean, if I were to think of an heroic figure for me, it would be somebody like Shane Warne, you know, the Australian classic Aussie sort of yeah. larrikin. Yeah, just because what he did, you know, what he did for whatever, you know, people who love cricket and sure. and sport. Yeah, I, I don't know, my own posterity, no. I mean, I, I always like that Spike Milligan thing about, you know, I think it's actually on his gravestone. Something like, you know, here lies Spike Milligan. And the inscription is C question mark. I told you, I told you I wasn't well. <laughs> that's terrific. <laughs> which it may be, it may be apocryphal, but I've read somewhere that that's actually on his gravestone, which I think is terrific. Actually, I think it's that, amazing. That's the um, way I'd like to go. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I think, <laughs> yeah. We, you know, we, we live in such a great time and we should be very, very pleased with ourselves for being able to look back on some parts of our history now with a little bit more. Yes. Humor. Exactly. I mean, humor is for me. Humor is so important. I mean, university lecturers, my English, yeah, I mean, in Britain, my university lecturers taught history through with lots and lots of humor, actually, constantly, you know, pricking the, pricking the pomposity of, um, of the great and the good. And that's what, yeah, I mean, that's, that's no better way of, of communicating things and getting people to, reflect a bit more critically on um, on what they're looking at. Well, congratulations on, on yet another book to add to uh, a, a long list of, of your contributions to our own history. It's a great pleasure to spend time with you. I really appreciate you making time for mm. me 
and for thank you, audience. Gareth. Yeah, thank and, you. And yeah. uh, please keep keep up the good work, and let's keep kids interested in history, and let's keep making history interesting to kids because God knows mm. we're lost without it. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. No. Sure. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Gareth. That's been really great. Thanks so much for the, for yeah having me on your your show. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate Thanks. your time. Cheers. Yeah.